Let's pray. Lord God, we again this morning thank You for Your Word. We ask that as it is declared this morning that Your Spirit, He would be here and He would impart life. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Uh, The book of Micah opens with God calling Himself as a witness. As a witness against the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah, for breaking the covenant. Most of the first two chapters of the book are a listing of the sins and the transgressions of the people. And in this way, this book is laid out intentionally like a courtroom drama. Chapter 3 then zooms in on the charges against the leaders of the people. The people went astray, but in a lot of ways they were led into that sin by their terrible and unfaithful leaders. And so, Micah is a courtroom drama. It has witnesses. It has charges, it has indictments, it has a verdict, and it even has punishments for the crimes. And here we have to remember what we read last week for our call to repentance at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, the blessings and the curses of the covenant. The Lord had told them right as they were about to enter into the land, this is what you're going to get if you keep the covenant, and this is what you're going to get if you don't. And much of the prophets and the minor prophets are laying out, you're getting what you're going to get because you're not keeping uh, the covenant. In the last two weeks, uh, in Micah 4 and 5, the trial was kind of adjourned for the most part as God offered some future hope, some promises, some look ahead to restoration, the birth of a shepherd king in Bethlehem, and how even in his judgment, God is working to bring about his kingdom to the ends of the earth as he scatters his people abroad and then through the preaching of the gospel, the nations will be converted. That brings us to Micah 6. We pick up with that trial imagery again. It's called back into session. God will call at the beginning of this chapter the earth as a witness. The whole earth is going to see what the Lord is doing here. And in this context, we encounter one of the most cited And I think one of the most distorted and misunderstood verses of our modern day. Micah 6.8 reads, in modern life, depending on your translation, something like this. What does the Lord require? That you do justice, you love mercy, and you walk humbly with your God. And it really is a beautiful verse, but I find that whenever I see this, whether it be on coffee mugs or on banners, or someone says it's their life verse, as soon as someone tells me that that's their life verse, I become immediately suspicious of them. Not because there's anything wrong with the verse. The verse is good, the verse is true, but our distortion and understanding of it today is, well, as you see as we work throughout this, not what most people think Micah 6.8 is actually about. What does it mean to do justice? What does it mean to love mercy, or as the ESV puts it, love kindness? and to walk humbly with God. In modern evangelicalism, this is trumpeted as a proof text for various social justice causes. That this verse proves that you should be all about whatever the latest cause happens to be. And it's all generally about living according to a progressive definition of justice. One that runs roughshod over Scripture's definition of justice. It is the practice of mercy under the banner of justice, we are told. According to this misreading of Micah 6.8, it becomes mostly about how we relate with one another. Micah 6.8 is about us doing justice to one another. It's about us loving kindness to one another. And then, oh yeah, also walking humbly with God. But I'm here to tell you, that's not what it's about. Not even a little bit. 
And I hope you'll understand this. As I wrote this, I finished writing the sermon this week. I go, this is way too long. I trimmed as much of it as I could. (laughs) I promise there's more I would love to say about this passage. We'll get into it here. This chapter opens with these words. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against His people, and He will contend with Israel. The Lord opened the chapter by saying, or by telling Israel uh, to present its case, and He does so by calling the earth and the mountains as witness. You can think back to chapter 1. As the Lord is going to lay out His case, He comes out and the mountains melt. Well, here they're called as witnesses against His people to see the testimony that is given. In a way, really, the earth is serving almost as the jury here. The Lord calls all of creation to hear what Israel is going to say and what the Lord is going to do. Because what the Lord judges Israel, the whole earth will see it. And the Lord wants the world to know that it is not His fault as what is about to happen. He is not the one who is in the wrong. It is Israel who has gone astray. It is Israel who has been unfaithful. And so He invites all of creation to hear the case. And what He is about to do is a public judgment upon His people. And He makes it plain as to why He will do this. And again, we must pause that this is a terrifying picture. God stands as a witness against His people. God testifies against His people. God brings an indictment against His people in front of the whole world. Brothers and sisters, this is not that unlike what Judgment Day will be. All of creation will behold, and every sin will be laid bare, and the Lord will say, you were guilty. You were wrong. And it will be a day filled with terror, except for those were found under the blood of Christ. And you'll say, not guilty. And that is what Israel is about to experience. A public unveiling of their unfaithfulness. And this is where we get a curveball. Every good trial has something unexpected that happens, into, happens in it. And this, we find this in verse 3. O my people, the Lord says, what have I done to you? Have I wearied you? Answer me. Instead of explaining Israel's sins yet again, the Lord says, why don't you tell me how I've wronged you? Israel, why don't you line up and explain to me all the things that I have done wrong? One commentator says that this clearly implies that some in Israel are at least excusing their unfaithfulness by saying God's been unfaithful to the covenant first. That he hasn't done what he said he was going to do, so we're going to look for salvation from some of these other gods. But God asks the question, one way or the other, he says, tell me what I have done. How have I wearied you? And of course, this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek. This is a little bit sarcastic from the Lord. If you read the prophets at all, and even if you're reading Jesus Jesus without uh, your evangelical glasses on that often make him into... Sunday school version of Jesus, you realize that God had a sense of humor and often used biting sarcasm uh, to make his points. And so the Lord continues with his testimony. He asks them, what have I done wrong? And then he says, well, let me tell you what I've actually done. For I have brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I have redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, 
O my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him, and what happened from Shatem to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So the Lord says, what have I done to you? And he says, well, let me give you a list. I saved you. I brought you out of slavery from the most powerful nation at that period of time in the whole world. I gave you Moses. I gave you Aaron. I gave you Miriam. I gave you the, the law, the priests, the sacrificial system. I gave you a land. I made a covenant with you. I even saved you from the kings within that promised land. He says, I have brought you up. I have redeemed you. And I have sent you out. I have upheld my covenant. I have done my part. And he did all of this from Shittim to Gilgal. You go, well, why? Why does he mention those two locations? Out of all the, the major Old Testament events, why those two? Well, in Numbers 25, at Shittim, the people break the covenant. They break the covenant. Their relationship with the Lord is hanging in the balance. And at Shittim in Joshua 5, or sorry, at Gilgal in Joshua 5, God and Israel renew their covenant as they come into the promised land. So the Lord's saying, I've been with you through the highs and the lows. When you broke the covenant back in Numbers 25, I didn't abandon you. I renewed that covenant with you as you came into the promised land. In a word, what the Lord is saying here is that He has been faithful to the covenant. He's done everything that He said He would do. That His faithfulness never ends. Through thick and thin. And in light of this surpassing grace, this unending faithfulness, what we have is the nail in the coffin of the case. We've listed Israel's sins. We've gone through them all. But you compare those to what the Lord has done, and it becomes quite clear what is wrong with Israel. What we are doing here is comparing the faithfulness of God to the unfaithfulness of man. I'm going to skip ahead to verses 9-12 through 12 here. Now the Lord is going to list His punishment. His punishment. This is what is going to happen. This is going to be the verdict in the case and the sentencing. 9-16 through 16. The voice of the Lord cries to the city. And it is, a, it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. There shall be hunger within you. You shall be put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. The Lord says, he will be like a town herald. He will go into the city and he will cry out the judgment and the verdict. This is what the prophets do. He has a rod in his hand. And so the Lord says he will curse their land. They will go hungry and they will starve. If you remember back to earlier in the Old Testament, 
God said, I'm going to give you a land. It is going to be a good land. And in a lot of ways, if you're reading this in light of the whole Bible, he's going to reverse the curse that he's placed upon the ground, at least a little bit. He says, this land is going to be a land flowing of milk and honey. You're going to plant crops and you are going to have an abundant harvest. Picturing to what Eden was like. But here, God says, you're going to sow, but you're not going to reap. You're not going to be blessed. I'm going to make you desolate. This is going to be a place of death and curses. All of this again harkens back to the end of Deuteronomy. God says, I will give you life if you walk in faithful obedience. I will give you death if you don't. This is what you need to know on the eve of entering into my promised land. Promises and judgment. Israel and Judah at this point are reaping the curses of the covenant. And he says, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. They entered into a covenant with God. They became his people. And even to this point in Micah, they remain his people. And they're going to bear the scorn of his people. The curses of his covenant. There's often debate in theological circles about God's covenants. Are they conditional? Are they unconditional? Do they place a condition upon the individuals, the people, in order for the blessings to come? Or are they unconditional? Is it holy grace? Is it wholly dependent upon God? Many will say, for example, that the covenant in the, in the garden with Adam and Eve, sometimes called the covenant of works, was purely conditional. Don't eat of this tree, and then you'll live forever. Purely conditional. Some will then say that God's covenant with Abraham, Genesis 12, 15, and 17, is strictly unconditional. God says, I will give you many offspring and do all these. He doesn't make any requirements of Abraham. And if you look at the covenant ratification with Abraham, they cut the animals in half, and Abraham doesn't go through it. Only God goes through it as the covenant is made. There's significant disagreement in Christian circles over the covenant with Israel through Moses. Is it conditional or is it unconditional? Or is it a mixture of both? Are there parts of it that are still promised today? Are they, are they not because the conditions weren't met? Well, it's hard for me to read Deuteronomy, the end of Deuteronomy and not see massive conditions. It's hard for me to not read the prophets and not see these conditions placed upon them. But here's the truth of the matter. All the covenants God has made with man are both conditional and unconditional. Every one of them including the new covenant. God initiates his covenants always out of grace. No condition whatsoever. He creates Adam. Adam didn't have a choice in that. He places him in a good garden. He says, here you go. You get all of this. He calls Abraham out of Ur, not because Abraham was great, but because God had grace and mercy upon him. He redeems Israel out of Egypt, and he says, don't think I did this because you're so great. I did it because of who I am. Unconditional. But then in every one of his covenants, God places terms and conditions on the covenant members. Adam, don't eat of this tree. Abraham, be circumcised and walk before me faithfully. Israel, here's my law. Keep it and you will do well. And the wonder of wonders is he even shows grace when every one of these people, including us, don't keep those conditions. Adam doesn't die fully when he breaks the covenant. God clothes him, and he even promises him that one day, I'll defeat your enemy. 
Abraham, though not trusting God to provide a kid, though trying to get that kid his own way, still gets the kid anyway. Israel stumbles and falls for centuries, and God provides sacrifices again and again. He raises up good kings again and again. Renewal again and again. But God also provides consequences for the sins of his people. Adam is cast out of the garden. There is tension between Hagar and Sarah, Ishmael and Isaac. Israel goes through cycles of not just renewal, but also judgment, leading ultimately to the exile. So it's not too much for me to say this morning. Every covenant God has made with man is both unconditional, based on God's grace and character, and conditional. It makes requirements of you and of me. That leads us to Micah 6, 6 through 8. What does the Lord require? What is the solution? The trial's winding down here. We have everyone being called to a witness. We have the, the evidence laid bare. But what does the Lord require from his people? God has been faithful to the covenant, to the covenant, but the people have not. And so this is the heart of the chapter. Consider verses 6 through 7 to start. This is spoken from the perspective of Israel. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? That's the question. What can be done? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So Micah says here, what can we do to come back to the Lord? How can we make this right? Maybe we can offer some sacrifices. And the answer is no, you can't. Israel never really stopped offering the sacrifices. They just brought in other gods to worship alongside the Lord. And the Bible tells us in multiple places that the blood of bulls and goats don't actually pay for the sins of the people. Rather, we know they point forward to the one true Lamb of God. Why do these blood of the animals not cover our sin? Well, because, quite frankly, humans are worth more than animals. You bear the image of God. A goat does not. It would be like if I owed you a million dollars and I showed up to pay you my debt with a million dollars of Monopoly money. What's that? That doesn't actually cover the debt that is due. But I say, wait a second here. Maybe if we had thousands of rams, maybe if I gave you a billion dollars of Monopoly money, that would be enough. You're in the wrong category. That's not going to work to pay for the sins. It won't pay the debt. It won't fix the covenant. There was never a point, or that was never the point of the sacrifices. That question, what must we do in light of our guilt? What must we do in light of the breaking of the covenant? Is what Micah 6.8 is answering. As the nation is on trial. Now, understanding that, let's look at Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? What is the solution to Israel's clear unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness in return. What is the solution for Israel breaking the covenant? It's not too much of a leap for me to say that any call here 
to saying that the solution is for you to adopt some socialist vision of justice is one of the worst versions of works-based salvation that you could conjure up. What must we do? Well, maybe you should just jump on the latest cause and that will make you good with God. That's not how it works. It has never worked that way. Israel is on trial for breaking the covenant. And the most damning evidence against her is that God has remained faithful to it throughout. So I'm going to break this down because there's a, there's a lot going on here. And our English uh, translations don't help us out here. And I want to dive in first a little deeper into how well-meaning pastors often mess up this passage. And they mess up this passage because it's taken up on a life of its own. And you come to it and you think you already know what it means. And so you pluck it out of context and go, see, look, this is what it means. Well, no, it doesn't. One example of this is uh, Tim Keller in his very terribly argued book, Generous Justice. I've been told by others, it's the only book of his I've read, I've been told by others that uh, the rest of his books are better. This one's not. Don't put it on your reading list. This is what he says of Micah 6.8. He says, To walk with God then, we must do justice out of merciful love. He says, what, what, what Micah 8 is about, that is if you're actually going to be in covenant with God, you need to be doing justice to one another out of merciful love. Another Reformed pastor, he put it this way. Micah 6, 8. Loving mercy and walking with God is how we do justice. What does it mean to do justice, they say? Well, it means you have to love mercy, or kindness, as the ESV puts it, and then walk with God. His point was that those three are the, the justice is defined by the latter two. And this is really the entire thesis of Keller's book. I've read it, and I've written long reviews on it. His argument is that true justice is what he calls generous justice. That is, if you want to understand justice, according to God, that mercy falls underneath the umbrella of justice. So when it says do justice, well, what does that mean? It means to love mercy. And in this way, Keller openly argues for a redefined vision of justice that must include mercy. And he says things like, I do this because things like charity are not optional, and justice makes it a requirement. Now, why does this matter? You may go, Levi, why, why do you want to hash out the definition of justice here? Because definitions matter. The church has brought in this, this new definition of justice, which is very different than how the Bible uses the term, but let me step out of the church for just a second. Our culture now argues for a vision of justice that has the term equity underneath it. And equity is a term the Bible uses. But the word, how that word is filled in today's world is equal outcome. Equity means equal outcome. So justice is about finding an equal outcome across groups, which sounds fine until you actually have to implement it in the world. What that means then is to get an equal outcome, you have to treat people differently according to who they are. So if you wonder why there are DAs across this country who will not prosecute people who are robbing stores, they think they are doing justice. Why? Because there's too many of certain people locked up and we need to have an equal outcome. And the best way to get that equal outcome is to let some people suffer injustice so that other people will be lifted up. Definitions matter. How you define terms matter. How you define justice matters. So if Keller's right, if mercy is a part of justice, then we get something even more serious than rampant crime in our cities. If we confuse mercy and justice, the very gospel itself will collapse upon itself. None of it will make any sense anymore. Take this quirky example. If I'm in a courtroom 
and I'm guilty of murder, and I'm about to be sentenced. Let's say my, my loving wife gets up to the judge, and she asks for mercy. But the wife of the man I killed gets up before the judge and asks for justice. Are they asking for the same thing? No. Sometimes I wonder, how, did people, how do people think Tim Keller's smart? It doesn't make sense to me. That they're clearly opposites. If one person's asking for justice and one's asking for mercy, they're asking for two different things. Again, this, this shouldn't be that hard. Public school and all that. If mercy is a part of justice, then, and this is what Keller's arguing, then it is something that we can demand and that we have a right to. Now bring that to the gospel. If mercy is a part of justice, then I have a right to demand mercy before the Lord. Granted, Keller doesn't take it that far, but ideas have consequences. And if you start sowing these seeds in the church, we're going to get ourselves into a lot of trouble. If mercy is not optional but a requirement of justice, then it is something that God owes us. And thus, justice is collapsed upon itself, and so is mercy. What makes mercy so beautiful when someone gives it to someone? It's because they don't have to. They give something they're not required to give, and there you see the glory of the gospel. In fact, we read in Romans 3 that mercy and justice only truly meet and remain distinct at the cross of Jesus Christ, where God is both just in judging our sins and the justifier, the one who makes us just because he has forgiven us our sins and given us mercy. The debt is paid. It is forgiven. So why do I write so much about this? I go on this, this tangent. Because the gospel itself is at stake. You can't redefine justice and then expect the gospel to remain untouched. Biblical justice is used in two ways in the Bible. One is to call an individual just. That is to say, this person is righteous. His character is that of just. But most commonly in Scripture, it is used this way. Getting your due, what you're entitled to, what you have earned. You have sayings like, that person got their just desserts. That's what they, what they had earned, what they deserved. A biblical example of this is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That is the concept of justice. Conversely, mercy is receiving good when you are due punishment. It is not getting your due. They are opposite. So what does the Lord require? If that's not what Micah 6.8 is about, then what is really going on in that passage? Well, we need to note two things. First, the phrase translated to love kindness are to love mercy. We need to look at that. What does that mean? If you have an ESV Bible, you'll note that there's a footnote here. I still remember sitting in my office one day, wrestling over this passage and realizing there was a footnote there. I'm like, ooh, what's the footnote? When translators put a footnote there, it's because they have a legitimate concern that they might not have translated this as best as they could. And the footnote reads, steadfast love, instead of love kindness. Well, that reads a whole lot differently than love mercy, if you put steadfast love in there instead. If you know Hebrew at all, that is the Hebrew word um, called chesed. That's the Hebrew word. It's one of the most important words in all of the Bible. In fact, for theological nerds like myself at my seminary, they used to sell t-shirts written in Hebrew that had that Hebrew word on it. Right? I never got that into Hebrew. I never bought one of those shirts. But you could buy that because that's how important that word is throughout the Bible. It is a word that carries a lot of meaning. 
It's a word like if I were to say to you today, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you're like, that carries a whole weight with it because of who we are as a nation. This word, has said carries far more weight for the Israelites than life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness does for Americans. This word is used throughout the New Testament and is used 239 times, and it is a notoriously hard word to get into one word in English. Some translations go with loving kindness, others with steadfast love. But the word is most commonly used to describe God's covenantal love for his people. You should have this ringing in your head right now. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. That's the word that is used here in Micah 6.8. In fact, it's used twice else in the book of Micah. Micah 7.18 and Micah 20. In both of those instances, the translators translate it as steadfast love. Psalm 25.10, same word. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Deuteronomy 5.10, by showing steadfast love to thousands and to those who love me and keep my commandments. Deuteronomy 7.9, know therefore that the Lord your God, he is faithful, who keeps his covenant and his steadfast love to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. The list goes on and on and on and on. Hased is not the word mercy. It's not really kindness either. All of those verses, it's tied to keeping the covenant. It's God's covenantal, unique love for his people. So, of course, in English, do justice, love steadfast love, and walk humbly with God is a terrible way to put it in English. But there is one English translation, I think, that gets at the heart of this. The Christian Standard Bible, used to be the Holman Christian Standard Bible, I think offers the best translation I've found. It says this, Micah 6.8, to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly. Doesn't that not just change the way we think about the verse? To act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly. Michael Shepard in his Old Testament commentary on Micah, backs this up, where he says, the best way to put it would be to love covenant loyalty. He says, to love or choose covenant loyalty, said, is often mistranslated as to love, that is to have strong feelings for mercy. That's Keller's entire thesis. But love here is not so much an emotion as it is an act of devotion or commitment. This is all about being committed to God. Is a call to primarily um, align yourself with God. This is what the word means everywhere else. This is what the word clearly means in this context. What is the trial about? Israel has been unfaithful. What does the Lord want Israel to do? To be faithful. He puts them on trial for breaking the covenant. They ask, what must we do? He says, keep the covenant. What I want from you is to stop being an adulteress to stop being an unfaithful wife. Second, you should note that in Micah 6.8, the Lord responds by saying, He has told you, O man, what is good. They didn't have footnotes back in the day where they could write a citation out, but this is the way they do it. He's saying, I'm quoting from somewhere. When I read to you today our call to repentance, that should sound eerily similar to you. Deuteronomy 10.12. Micah 6.8, if you look in your cross-reference, is a citation of Deuteronomy 10, chapter 12. 
What does the Lord require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep his commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding to you today for your good. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the covenant. God says, what do I require of you? I told you in Deuteronomy 10. Walk faithfully with me, keep the covenant, and keep the commands. Again, if you do a little bit of research before you write whole books and get published by publishing companies that don't fact check, it's very clear that mercy has nothing to do with that passage whatsoever. To put it, no, no too fine a point on it, Micah 6.8 is not primarily about our horizontal relationships with one another. It's about our relationship with God. It's about how we relate to him. It is a call that we would do justice to God. That is to give him what is our, his due as our covenant partner. We owe him a covenant relationship, a faithfulness. That is to keep his commands, to love him, and to be dedicated to him. This would be no different than if an adulterous wife were to walk up to her husband and say, what do you require of me? And all he would do would point back to his marriage vows and say, forsake everybody else. I want you to love me. I want you to be faithful to me and to remain in your covenant with me. Walk by my side in good times and in bad. In fact, that's the covenant we make, for better or for worse, richer or poor, sick in health. Covenants matter. God cares. So what does the Lord require of us? Fidelity. Faithfulness. To not whore after other gods. To give God his due as the creator of the universe and the one who has brought us into this covenant. That is what Micah 6.8 calls us to. Not to redefine justice. Not to blend mercy together. Not to practice some demented socialistic policy. Not to turn mercy ministries into justice ministries. Not any of those things. And certainly not to earn your salvation by joining the latest cause. You and I, though, are in the New Covenant, and the New Covenant is both like and unlike the Old Covenant. It is better than the Old, for it is the fulfillment of the Old. But like all the covenants, there are both conditional and unconditional things about it. You are saved by grace, through faith, not of works. Full stop. It is Christ's blood that satisfies God's justice on our behalf. It is Christ's blood that secures the mercy that we do not deserve. Our election and our justification are wholly unconditional. You cannot add anything to it. Yet, there are conditions to continuing in the covenant. You must keep believing. You must just on the other side of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, is verse 10. You must do the good works that the Lord has prepared for you from beforehand. You must remain faithful to the covenant. And if you're honest, you know that like Israel, you failed at this. You have not done so perfectly. And I think the most striking thing of the new covenant is is that it's both conditional and unconditional, but God even meets the conditions for us. God's faithfulness becomes our faithfulness through Christ. Christ got our unfaithfulness and we get his faithfulness. We become one with him. But even more than that, God gives us his spirit, living in us, equipping us and empowering us so that we will not become unfaithful like Israel was. 
So you remain faithful, but you remain faithful through the power of God within you. The conditions are met by God through us. All that the Lord requires can be accessed for us in Christ, in his work. So what does the Lord require of you? That you continue to follow after Christ. That you believe in him. That you believe in his death, in his resurrection, in his return. That God through Christ and the Spirit is going to keep you in the covenant. To keep you faithful. For Christ and Christ alone is our only hope in life and death. That's what Micah 6.8 ultimately points us to. Not some street protest. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that we have a hope. A hope in Christ. We ask that as we go forward this day and we look at what you require of us, that we would turn to Christ even more. That we would see if not by his work and by the sending of his spirit, we would be without hope. And so Lord, help us to walk in humble reliance upon the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And may we therefore walk in boldness and confidence, knowing that you will keep us by your power. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.